Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining. Today, I'm speaking with Khadija Khan. Khadija is a journalist and an activist, and I was hoping to speak to her today about what's going on in the UK as far as Islam, and especially considering this latest transgression, if you want to call it, of an autistic boy dropping a Quran. Hey, Khadija, thank you for coming on. Thank you so much, Abad, for having me. Um. Yeah, so I mean, I'd mentioned like you were a journalist and activist, and you write a lot about Islam and standing up to religious fundamentalism. And then, I mean, I don't know, it seems like the UK is getting like, pretty bad for <clears throat> not standing up for rights. And it's just, it's, it seems like it, there's a constant conflict of which rights get more precedence. And I mean, there was that, there was that teacher a little while back. Um, at the, what, the Batley School. Then there were protests from Muslim parents about, I don't know if it was just general sex ed or if it was trans issues like near Birmingham or Manchester. Now, if that had happened, like the protests, let's say, if that had happened, if that had been Christian parents, right away you would be calling calls for white supremacy, but because it was Muslims, it was kind of let go. So if you wouldn't mind talking a bit about like that kind of stuff in the UK, and then we can maybe get to the specifics of the case with this young boy who dropped the Quran. Um, this is not uh, an overnight development. It's been going on for some time. And as you mentioned, uh, the Battle Grammar incident, and after that, um, uh, when Muslim parents, they protested outside the school gates for, um, you know, uh, introducing, um, sex education uh, into the curriculum and trans issues. Um, it, was, it was very alarming since the beginning. And it's um, a, like tragedy, I would say, that uh, it wasn't uh, like taken as some serious issue. They let it continue. I mean, uh, if Batley teacher um, went into hiding, it didn't take, uh, um, uh, it didn't ma manage to, you know, get attention from the authorities, um, concerned authorities. And uh, uh, they try to calm the situation, you know, they try to calm the situation. And uh, even um, Labour MP, she um, mentioned, uh, like, during the Bethlehem grammar, when there were uh, elections going on um, in Bethlehem, uh, she mentioned that it was just, uh, you know, um, it's his, uh, it's up to the teacher if he wants to join the school again. I mean, there is no problem in that, uh, you know, regard. But we all know why the teacher cannot come back to school. We all know why the teacher is still in hiding. Uh, it's it's very obvious fact. And it's a sad reality that uh, until now, uh, there has not been any, you know, um, I would say, uh, Mayama taken uh, to tackle this issue. No, I mean, in the UK, okay, so I've been following this since I guess about 2014, some of this stuff. But it always seems like they capitulate when it comes to Islam. I guess the most egregious example is the grooming gangs. Like they let it happen and they didn't do anything about it because they didn't want to seem racist. Is that part of it with, with what's going on or is it just like misplaced altruism? Like what's like, what's the rationale behind not wanting to pursue what it's extremism coming from Islam? Apparently what we see is um, that authorities, concerned authorities, whenever they are involved in such incidents, this, uh, you know, uh, extremist attitude from a group of a bunch of people, I would say, who claim to be uh, the community leaders or, you know, the, the people who are the guardians, you know, um, of, of uh, the religion. Um, whenever this reaction comes from them, then uh, there is a very disproportionate, you know, response from the uh, authorities. It's always like they try to find a way to, uh, as I said, calm the situation. Uh, and to calm the situation, they try to appease, you know, these people, um, try to uh, make certain adjustments, you know, to um, make them feel better. And uh, uh, 
this is the reason that this is not stopping anywhere. It's been going on. And uh, today we are at a point where children are being punished for offending religious sensibilities of uh, uh, some snowflakes, I would say, religious zealots. Yeah, so, I mean, you mentioned the children. I, I mentioned at the start about this young boy. So if you wouldn't want to get, if you wouldn't mind getting into specifics of that case, because that, to me, you can take it further from there, because, I mean, this is just absolutely ridiculous. And, you know, the reaction, everything was just overblown for what had happened. It's it's a school where um, a group of kids, I would say, they um, they had been involved in, in a certain activity, it was, I would say it, it was just nothing. It could be taken as a disciplinary issue in the school, within the school, but uh, um, our, a copy of Quran uh, suffered uh, damage, if you may call it, a, it's scuffed, I would say, it's, it's nothing more than that. And uh, um, on, on that issue, there was an overblown, you know, reaction from the so-called community leaders. Uh, they jumped onto the conclusion that that they these kids have disrespected the religious sensibilities of the whole British Muslim community. I mean, they are speaking on the behalf of the whole community. And uh, then there was, uh, uh, of course, a knee-jerk reaction from the school admin. Uh, they uh, in instantly they they issued an apology, a public apology, and they tried to uh, you know appease the, these so-called community leaders. They suspended um, the the four children, four school children, uh, immediately and uh, try to make it clear to the, the so-called community leaders that we are going to take this matter very seriously. We are just gonna make it sure that nothing of that sort um, uh, happened ever again. And uh, uh, this matter does not you know, uh, finish um, after, after the suspension of those kids. It carried on. And it's still uh, not, uh, uh, you know, nowhere near to finish, to be finished. It's just there because uh, afterwards we saw a conference, uh, um, if you may call it, uh, because it, the way it was, you know, it, it looked like a Sharia tribunal, I would say, in a mosque, uh, chief inspector of uh, West Yorkshire uh, police, and then there was, Head, headmaster of that school, then uh, there was a counselor of that area, and then there was a mother of an autistic uh, child. Uh, she was apologizing. I wouldn't say that she was apologizing. It seemed like she was made to apologize, you know? And it seemed like she had no other option because of course she wanted to protect her child, but why? I mean, what happened? Why these kids, they were receiving uh, death threats only because uh, a copy of Quran suffered a mild, mild damage, I would say. Nothing serious. Even if it was serious, I would argue, even if it was serious uh, damage or even if the child wasn't autistic, so what? We don't have blasphemy laws here in the UK. We don't punish people for mocking, criticizing, or ridiculing religious belief. So why it was like seen as, and very interestingly, I, uh, I tell you that um, this incident was recorded as known crime hate incident. And that is ridiculous. That is ridiculous really. That why police had been involved in this whole situation and that hate incident. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, okay, just want to put that aside for a second. So, I mean, I grew up in a, you know, I grew up, I was raised as a Muslim, uh, you were as well. There were points when I was young and I mean, I dropped the Quran, you know, like I was either picking it up to read myself or bringing it to my 
mother or something, and it dropped. Yes. My parents didn't have that kind of reaction. Okay, maybe my parents were a little bit more open and liberal than, you know, a mullah or something like that. But, I mean, you know, they t- told me respect it. I had to pick it up and kiss it and whatever, you know, like. At the end know. of the day, it's just a book. Yeah. I mean, it's fine that people who believe in this book, who follow this book, <laughs> they uh, have, you know, sentiments. They are sentimental, I would say, about this book. But for those people who don't believe in this book, who don't follow this book, it's just a book. It's just another religious book. That's what it is. But punishing school children, a dangerous, I would say, precedent has been set. And now um, the Home Secretary, uh, Suela Breverman, she has taken the notice of the situation and she has explicitly said that uh, there is no blasphemy law here in Britain and uh, nobody is, you know, obliged to... to, uh, respect any religious belief and this is what the reality is actually but on the other side if you see the reality is also that four kids have been suspended and this suspended since a suspension of, of those school children is still there these children uh, have not been returned to the schools yet and okay so you, you know, we talked about the teachers so if these kids go back to that school are they going to get bullied? Are they going to get attacked? Are that you know, like what's the consequences for them if they go back to the school now? The Sharia tribunal that I just mentioned mm-hmm. earlier, uh, in that uh, the whole meeting, if I I watched uh, the imam, you know, the so-called imam, I would say mm-hmm. he was uh, clearly saying things uh, which are which were threatening, really. We will not tolerate, you know, this rhetoric, we will mm-hmm. not tolerate, we will sacrifice our lives. And then he mentioned that the headmaster has been agreed to work with the mean in order to educate the children about Islam and about Muslims. I mean, that is alarming. That this person is an intolerant person who is telling you that he's not going to tolerate anything that that is deemed, you know, disrespectful towards Muslim or towards Islam. So the headmaster has been agreed to work with that fanatic. And literally, these four children, they are going, they are not going back to school in, in, in the near future, I would say, because it's a huge step and it takes lots of courage, I would say, to make it happen. It's not going to happen any sooner. But if they go back, definitely they are not going to, you know, face some uh, kind of uh, um, tolerance or they, they're not going to receive some kind of, you know, welcome back, at, you know, uh, attitude. They are going to be seen as some kids who committed who committed sort of blasphemy and they were punished and even if they go back if the headmaster is working in collaboration with that fanatic or uh, some other fanatics like him this is really worrying that in what atmosphere those kids are going to you know go to school where these kind of fanatics are going to have influence you know that is really scary like okay so just on this for a second so you mean like this imam yes i saw some of that um i don't know what you want to call it news conference or whatever they were doing i saw you know yeah and then the guy's you know fundamentalist and he's an extremist but like you know you'd mentioned like the community leaders and things like this to my mind it almost always seems like if it's the press whether it's in the UK or Canada, the US, um, you know, if they're going to go speak to a so-called community leader, it's always the same person. You know, it's, you know, when I say the same person, it's the same mentality. They all have like, you know, the long beards, or if it's a woman, she's wearing a hijab. And they push that out there. Now, 
I have family in the UK, they're Muslim, and they don't agree with a lot of this stuff. But they're afraid to speak out because of community reaction. So how much of this do you think is coming from, let's say, the press and the government and organizations that always put these people forward as a community leaders? Do they put them forward because they're the loudest voices or do they just, is it just laziness? Like, oh, we don't want to go look for anyone else. This person feels like talking, so we'll let them talk. To be very honest about, I am just fed up with this, you know, um, excuse that we don't want to be called racist. We don't want to be seen as racist. The reality is this, that it is a fault on the part of the authorities. It is because when, why are certain, I would say concession have been given to these community, so-called community leaders who then have become a law in themselves. I mean, if you watch that, you know, meeting in the mosque, it looks like a Sharia, you know, council where uh, a mom is pleading not guilty. I mean, trying to convince uh, those, you know, Kazi, the concept mm -hmm. of Kazi, we know, the judge, that my child is autistic and my child doesn't know what he was doing. He was silly and all that. And like, please forgive my child and please don't hurt my child. I mean, that is so disturbing the whole spectacle you know it's appalling really and we are today here at this point because of those who did not uh, have the courage to tackle this issue head-on today home secretary she has uh, issued a statement but still it's a statement for me because until the batley grammar school's teacher comes back and join his his uh, you know job again until these kids they return to the school like with all due respect and love and care these are only words and yeah. these words this this reckless i would say this reckless attitudes on the part of the concerned authorities is the reason why these fundamentalists they feel emboldened you know when they are taking these kind of steps. I mean, can you imagine that there is a movie, um, you know, uh, in, in, in a cinema movie is there and people, they can't go and watch that movie because that movie, movie was deemed to be a blasphemous movie by a certain group of people. And then the whole chain of cinema, they just cancel the screening of that movie. It just happened in, in uh, you know, the Lady of Heaven. Yeah. It happened in the UK. I mean, this is really concerning that why, are we uh, still, you know, following the law of the land, the law of the UK? Or is there, you know, a parallel system that is, you know, Sharia law has been enforced or implemented or imposed, I would say? Okay, but on this... One of the things I'll have to say, like, I'm not defending the, the Muslims who are pushing this, but like the on the side of the government and the authorities and you know, like the cinema change and all that. Um, they're capitulating and it's like, I'll say this stuff started around the 2000s, like or right around 9-11. Okay, you had the, the backlash. There was backlash in the U.S. to Muslims. I mean, one of the things I read about that was kind of like the most extreme to me was it was a elderly Lebanese woman. She was Christian. And she did translation of Arabic to English. And her office got destroyed. I think she was in her 60s. But because she did Arabic to English, they just assumed she was Muslim. And it was right after 9-11. So, I mean, I, I know like things like that happen. And I, But right around that point, you got the thing of nothing to do with Islam, nothing to do with Islam. And it just came out. Now, that back then, I mean, I didn't know about it. I didn't look into it. But that was the start of all this woke nonsense. Now you're getting this woke nonsense where... Um, the West, you know, liberal, like enlightenment values aren't being defended. So, I mean, you had the same thing with movies about transgenderism and books about transgenderism. The, you know, the, the trans rights activists start boycotts, cinemas pull movies. I mean, Amazon's pulled books, you know, bookstore chains have pulled books. 
And it's, so we're not even defending our own rights. How are we, you know, how do you expect immigrants who come in to defend those rights if you're not defending them? I mean, granted, you know, in the UK more than in Canada or whatever, you've got, you know, second and third generation. But even then, like, we're not defending our own rights or, or the West is not defending those rights. So it's, these two things have come up in parallel. So now you've given, you've given them a foothold. You've given any kind of extremist who wants a foothold, but they'll judge that based on, okay, what color of skin are they? Are they an oppressed person or not? And then they'll give them the right. So you have that with Islam now. Islam is a, you know, an oppressed group. And so we have to defend it. Um, I mean, I'll give you a really bad example from Canada. A couple of years back, uh, there was pro-Palestinian protests and they were chasing Jewish people around the streets. There were uh, threats going out. There were people uh, going to people's houses and all the houses with the mezuzahs, you know, like the little the piece yeah. of wood they put, uh, they were taking note of those. Uh, there were police warnings that went out saying, you know, this is... the first thing our prime minister said was let's not be Islamophobic. Okay. And I mean, like Jews were being chased in the street <laughs> and it's, you know, so it's this kind of thing that's happening and it's like, I, 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 you know, I used to, I joked about it. I said, you know, they can't see the victims for the Brown people. So they see, you know, Muslims who they think are Brown and it's something happening to white people. So it's, Oh no, the Brown people must be right. And it just, it's like I said, it's, it, these things happened in parallel where we were giving up our rights and these, you know, like those extremists were demanding more and more. Yes, exactly. You know, appeasing these extremists, it's it's a bottomless pit. You can never appease them. They the more you will give them, the more they will ask. Or there there would be a point when they don't they wouldn't even ask. They would just take whatever they want to take. And actually, we are just going towards uh, that direction where they don't have to ask anything. They don't have to talk to authorities anymore. Literally. We see here in the UK that whenever any incident of this kind happens, they don't have to, you know, go and talk to someone. The authorities, they go to talk to them. They try to calm them down. They try to appease them. And that is, that is concerning, really, that these are hard-earned freedoms that we enjoy here in the West. You and me, we know the society we have come from, you know, the background we have come from. We know that there is no concept of free speech. There is no concept of tolerance. There is no concept of, you know, um, tolerating opposing views. The, the freedoms and the rights we enjoy here in the West, they are hard earned <coughs> freedoms. But to my utter disappointment, I see that as you said, we are not defending these rights. Those who try to defend these rights or try to say that no, enough is enough, we are not going to tolerate intolerance. Then there is this accusation of Islamophobia that has been this this term has been you know uh, has become a synonym um, for blasphemy. The moment you say something, you are accused of being is being an Islamophobe and the moment you are being in, you are accused of being an islamophobe you are silent nobody wants to listen to you even if you try to you know convince or persuade people nobody wants to talk to you because you are an, an islamophobe this this is how they use this allegation you know they hurl around they uh, try to snare people you know if you criticize now what i see is that there is Another now thing I have just noticed recently that we see these fundamentalists, they are, um, you know, not very much uh, progressive in their attitudes and, uh, you know, in their thoughts. But people who look progressive and very well-educated people, I'm not saying that they are in majority, they are still in minority, these kind of people, but they try to, you know, Justify this kind of appalling attitude, punishing kids for 
committing, in their views, for committing blasphemy. I mean, this is, I think this, this should be the lim end of our limit, you know, but it is not. Still, it is not, I'm telling you. It's going to go further because, again, the, the, the reluctance we see that on the part of the um, authorities, they are still not willing to tackle this issue. Or every time they want, we are talking about extremism, they just blur the line between Muslims who follow their religion peacefully and who don't have, you know, these kind of ambitious to just um, impose their beliefs on, on to the wider society. They try to blur this line between them and those who are extremists in their attitude, in their thoughts, and they want to impose their beliefs onto the wider society. So this, this attitude to blur this line is the reason that we are unable to tackle this, tackle this issue. Because as you said, that every time uh, somebody talks about extremism that comes from uh, the uh, you know certain section of Muslim society, then it is deemed as anti-Muslim bigotry or Islamophobic. Yeah, now <clears throat> just on one of these things, like I'm one of my biggest concerns, and I, you know, ever since I got back from overseas, that's the thing I just said we're going to start see it happen, and we are starting to see some of it, and it's like overcorrecting the other way. Now there is a huge um disproportionality in how these things are handled so muslims getting onto the street and praying on the street and blocking traffic no one even gets so much as a ticket and i don't want to get into that preacher uh who was saying he was praying silently and i know like the like they set up a zone where you can't pray and stuff like that whatever but if that had been muslims would the same reaction have happened and so people see that now you might just start getting an overcorrection to this. It's so, all well, you're treating them differently. You're giving them more rights than you're giving me. People getting resentful. And then you do actually start having reprisals. And you know, you had some of it. You had like things like the EDL and you know, think you know, like the British Defense League and all that kind of stuff. Now, like, are you concerned about that? Or do you see rumblings of that going on? Or, you know, like like what's that kind of situation? That what happened just recently, mm -hmm. um, four kids, non-Muslim kids, they have been punished, you know, for offending religious sensibilities of, of uh, as they say, uh, the whole Muslim community. I mean, it is going to resent people, you know, in, in society. It is going to, you know, uh, make it look like that certain section of the society is being treated differently. And uh, it's a kind of, you know, um, alarming, I would say, attitude on the part of uh, the concerned authorities. And I am unable to understand that why they don't understand that this kind of attitude can, you know, fuel anti-Muslim bigotry. You know, people would be thinking that these so-called community leaders, they are self-proclaimed community leaders, but they claim to represent the whole Muslim community, British Muslim communities. So people, the, the other communities may think, may start thinking that we are being treated differently. Our kids are now going to be punished for hurting their feelings. So this is going to, you know, provoke some kind of resentment uh, within the, you know, other section of the society. And then I, I also say that these people, they are always a minority. But again, it's the authorities, it's the media that make them the face of Muslim community. And you know, now if I say that there are people who are tolerant, I know there, there are so many people, so many Muslim, Muslim families that don't, they are really ashamed of this attitude. You know, they, they feel embarrassed that on like on our names, what's going on? And people, you know, they are mistreating children now in the name of our religion. I mean, I have met so many people who, who say this thing. Uh, and 
they are not where to be seen. They are not on the media. They are not uh, uh, like uh, on the good books of uh, the authorities, I would say. Whenever authorities want to talk, they would go straight away to an imam. And that imam who is very conservative, who is very rigid in his views, they will always go to and talk to that imam. And then there would be a strange, you know, picture of the community, people who don't tolerate anything, who don't want to integrate, who don't like Britain, who don't like British law, who don't want to obey British law. Sharia law is above British law for them. I mean, this kind of distorted picture of the British Muslim communities, I would say, then being presented in the media or in, you know, in, in, in society. One thing about that, and it's so I had uh, an uncle and some family friends, they were talking about a mosque and they were saying, oh, well, you know, oh, I don't like this imam. He's too political, blah, blah, blah. His khutbas are always political. And so I asked him, I said, why don't you say something? And these are all people who, you know, when there was only one mosque in Montreal, they were involved with it. They were involved and now they're all their local community mosques and, you know, they, they're well known, but they're still afraid to say something. I, I you know, the, the people mentioned, mentioned, I know that the majority of the Muslims in the UK or Canada or whatever, just want to live their lives. Right. And there is some, like, you know, you'll have some degree of conservative. I'm not talking about the fundamentalist, even like from the conservative to the, the very moderate, you'll have some degree of conservatism and, you know, certain things that you might find appalling or whatever but at least they're moderate they just want to live their lives but they don't want to speak out like so i'm just at one point i'm like okay you know what you can't be a silent majority minority or majority anymore you have to go out if the press is not going to come to you hold meetings hold you know put out a conference yourself like go speak to these the school yourself like enforce you know they send one or two fundamentalist imams, have 20 parents from the other side show up and say, no, you're not speaking for us. Like, I would like them to see that, I would like to see them do that as well, because it's, from their point, it's just, oh, well, I'm going to get ostracized from my mosque. It's like, no, if you're in the majority, you can kick those nuts out and you can set up the mosque the way you like. But, yeah, but there is I, that I reluctance. With, yeah, I agree with you that they are reluctant when it comes to, you know, speak up. And uh, there, there are apologists who would say that, uh, um, you know, uh, don't call these people uh, a mob, don't uh, uh, call them fundamentalists. They are, uh, you know, British Muslims, ordinary British Muslims. But the reality is this, that they aren't. There is a, you know, every time there is some kind of tension um, with the, you know, offending religious sensibilities uh, kind of narrative. A group of, you know, uh, young men or, you know, um, mature men, you can say, they are the ones who will be, you know, standing outside the school gates, who will be standing, you know, uh, outside the uh, in the streets, and they would be protesting and, you know, they would be saying that we will sacrifice our lives for the honor of our uh, religion or our prophet and these sort of things. And the other... You, Ordinary people, they really don't want to be a part of this mob. But the thing is, they need to come out. People say that why you want Muslims to uh, apologize on behalf of these, you know, fundamentalists and extremists. No, they don't have to apologize. They have to condemn them. Because as you said, that if you are in majority, then you need to make your voice heard. You cannot just stay silent and expect that, that they will just uh, go away. They, they are not going anywhere. They are there and they are uh, very much vocal and you can say influential. Why they are becoming more and more influential, why they are, they have literally taken hostage, I would say, the institutions now. We see that the whole school admin, you know, uh, gets on their knees when uh, some sort of this incident uh, happens. So it's, they are becoming more and more influential, though they are a minority. So you need to speak up out loud. You need to say that, no, not uh, on our behalf. You don't represent us. So it's not that you have to apologize.
apologize for these bad or extremists. It's just that you need to make these people uh, realize that, no, you don't speak on our behalf. You don't represent us. And I think that it's, it's a kind of moral obligation now to come out, to come forward and just condemn these people out loud. Yeah, I'm not going to hold my breath on that, though. But like, I'm just—I want to contrast what's going out. So you take a look at what's going on in Iran, you know, and it started with well, the most recent because it's been going on for years now. But uh, you know, with the death of uh, I forget her name, uh, Amina Masi. Uh, Masa Amini. Yeah, uh, they with with her murder, and then you've got these protests that have been going on for so long. Now in Afghanistan as well, the girls and the women are protesting the Taliban not letting the girls go to school. Uh, there were, you know, I believe there were a bunch of med students who walked out of their final exams because they wouldn't let the women write them. And there was a professor on TV who tore up his PhD. Unfortunately, I think he got arrested. Um, and then you contrast that to, you know, World Hijab Day in Canada, in the UK and stuff like that. I mean... You know, you had Justin Trudeau out of one side of his mouth defending the Iranian women, and on the other side of his mouth, he's like, oh, you know, World Hijab Day, blah, 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 blah. It's so empowering and this and that. Um, I mean, I, I remember, okay, Trudeau, one thing about him that made, in 2015 when he got elected, he's, he had a, his cabinet was 50% was fifty women, 50% men. And so a reporter asked him, well, why do you have a gender-balanced cabinet? And he said, oh, it's because it's 2015. The following, so he got elected in October. The following Eid, which was in 2016, he went to a mosque in Ottawa. And, you know, it's a mosque being a mosque. The women were up in the upper gallery. Yeah. The men were down on the floor. And, you know, this is a guy who talked about his gender balance cabinet and it's 2015 yes. and whatever. During his talk at the mosque, he praised the segregation of the women. And he's like, oh, look at the sisters up there all by themselves. Yes. And, and, I mean, ridiculous. So, like, this is the the thing here. It's it's this identity politics that when you, it's going to come in conflict. So, if you're picking the identity of women and then you're picking the identity of Islam, there's at one point or other it's going to come into conflict. But you know, they just don't seem to see it. And it's like I I, I try to like I said I look at what's going on in Iran and Afghanistan, and you can even talk. You know, like there's things going on in the Middle East. Um, you know, there's a push for more secularism. Whereas yes. it seems like we're we're going the opposite direction. Exactly, exactly, and the, uh, it's it's really strange. I mean, um, if if we uh, somebody talk about you know uh, gender equality and the people say that no women should be paid less than men, um, or and women should not be in a place where men are you know seated, mm -hmm. then we would uh, call it out. Instantly, we would say it's misogyny, it's, it's anti-women attitude. But when these kind of uh, misogynistic, you know, uh, attitudes stem from religious beliefs, then somehow uh, people, they, they feel reluctant, you know, um, they don't call it out straight away. For them, it's like, oh, it's their belief. No, it's not. If something outside the framework of religion is seen as misogynistic it should be seen as misogynistic even within the you know framework of that of any religion if it exists in that religion so it's it's hypocrisy i would say of these people that on one hand they would talk about women's right and they would talk about you know equality um for women and uh, prosperity for women and when it comes to religious belief which are overtly misogynistic then they would you know try to justify it one way or another and i find it appalling really you know we are uh, witnessing women's revolution right now in iran and in afghanistan i would say women are just pushing back they are fighting against the you know this mullayath this this mullahism i would say and this religious you know misogyny but in the west people are still not willing to call it as such. For them, it's like, okay, women are very brave. It's the regime. It's not the regime. It's the beliefs that regime have 
has adopted, you know, has imposed on, on people. It's the belief that's, that a religious belief. So it's, it's beyond me really that how can you not condemn it unequivocally and you will try to excuse, you know, this misogyny and women hating attitudes one way or another. Yeah. One thing I bring up, um, this was in 2015 in Afghanistan. So there was two incidences. One, um, I forget her name. I think it was like Fakunda or something. Like she was a young woman. She accused an imam of selling charms with versus the Quran in it, like some magic charms. He then accused her of burning the Quran that she got torn to bits. Yeah. Now, that's religious fundamentalism and happened in Kabul. Yeah. You know, horrible. But the thing that happened the next day, a bunch of women went and took her body from the mosque. They said, no, we won't let you bury our sister because you're the cause of her death. And then a bunch of boys and men made a ring around them to protect them while these women buried their friend. Now, first of all, a woman going to a, a cemetery and performing a funeral, that's you know one thing on its own. But then you had these men protecting them. So my thing was, okay, in places like Kabul, Afghanistan was changing a little bit. You had this idea of standing up to authority and secularism and, you know, fundamental rights coming in. Yeah. You know, you, you had the nuts who killed her. Um, yeah. You know, um, the, I, I, I find it really interesting that in the West we have enlightenment and we have, you know, well-educated people and all that. But then men... Their role model is Andrew Tate. Oh. And it's it's really ridiculous, you know. The way he what? talks, he used to yeah. talk, I would say, no, yeah. he talks, doesn't talk anymore. The way he used to talk. And whatever he, he used to say, it was so um, disturbing. I mean, I'm not saying it because I'm a woman. I'm just from a humanistic uh, perspective. It was so, you know, um, I can never even imagine to look at that person, whether it's a woman or a man, having these kind of thoughts. And um, I, I think that that person can be a role model. But on the other side, we see, as you just mentioned, in Afghanistan and in Iran as well, there are men who are standing, you know, uh, with their women and they are defending their women's right to not to wear hijab, to refuse to wear hijab. And uh, in Afghanistan, when Taliban, they ban uh, women from entering the schools and, uh, you know, um, uh, universities, the men, they uh, refused to study. They left right away the universities. They said that if our sisters, our daughters are not uh, allowed to go to schools, then we are not uh, going to the universities as well. So I would say that really, that if there is lack of role models in the West, they should look up to these men and try to learn. I mean, uh, if, if they really need a role model. Because with Andrew Tate, I saw that not only um, he had huge fan following, but to, to my, <laughs> I would say, I, I was shocked to see that. The people who were well-known people and, you know, very, you know, well-meaning people, they would find that kind of character reliable or, you know, a kind of role model. It's it's ridiculous. Yeah. But I mean, that's a whole separate issue right now because, yeah. of, <laughs> I mean, you know, there's a lot going on in the West as well with like, I mean, if you look at statistics, uh, boys are doing worse in school. Less boys are going to university, less boys are getting, you know, less men are getting more jobs. There's a whole other kind of stuff. And it's just, and so people like Tate can then go to the the bottom end and just start picking up followers. And then, you know, so, I mean, there's a whole other thing there. But, like, we're, again, we're not doing ourselves any favors. So there was, again, this was in Afghanistan. There was a U.S. Army captain that walked in on an Afghan commander. And the commander was sodomizing a little boy because, you know, like the Bachabazi, right? Mm, yeah, and yeah, so when the, yeah. the captain put a stop to it, the U.S. captain was the one that was reprimanded, not the Afghan army command, commander, because, you know, oh, you're offending their culture. Wow. Okay, I mean, th that's ridiculous. Again, going back to 2015, in Kabul, they started teaching 
the the far left gender theory and stuff like 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 Judith Butler and Gail Rubens. They started teaching that at the University of Kabul. I mean, these people don't need Judith Butler and Gail Rubens. They need John Milton and you know John Stuart Mill. They need you know they need enlightenment. They don't need this nonsense. And it's unfortunately from our end, that's what we're shipping out. We're shipping out this like through NGOs and things like that. I mean, you see it in the Middle East, uh, like in North Africa and, you know, some places in Iran, like like around Iraq and stuff like that, where people are trying to bring in, you know, enlightenment ideas and stuff like that. Like uh, Ideas Beyond Borders does a lot of work with that, with translating books and stuff. But the pushback they get is the post-colonial stuff. Oh, this is just colonialism again. This is just the white Western ways of thinking. And it's just like, no, but this is knowledge from everywhere. So it's, we're pushing out this stuff. and you know, those people are actually trying to get some sort of freedom and liberty, and we're giving them things that are going to be absolutely detrimental to their own liberation. Yeah, I see it, that um, th- this kind of, you know, um, things are used to infantilize, you know, people. I, I would say from minority background that uh, they cannot understand things. They cannot learn anything better um it's their culture and uh, with that excuse they just don't um it's a, again it's it's a bigotry of low expectation you know that you don't think that uh, people from minority background can be to- uh, tolerant they can be broad-minded uh, they can um, espouse secular values uh, for them uh, it's uh, like um, infantilization you know it's it's uh, going on i would say uh, on this issue even this uh, religious sensibilities uh, all the time offend uh, like uh, offended one way or another it's just this that they don't think that we can we can you know learn to be tolerant we can be a part of the society it's a kind of identity box that they have made for us and they want us to stay in that box, not to come out of that box, not to be a part of the you know, mainstream society. And because of that reason, I would say this kind of attitude that, oh, I will be offended or I will be uh, offended if my uh, religious uh, beliefs are even being discussed, I would be offended. So this kind of uh encouragement is coming from those people who suffer from you know savior syndrome i would say who want to molly cuddle uh, m- uh like minorities and think thinking that they they are like the victims we have you know um uh ruled over them for for centuries or i mean that colonialism all imperialism and all that thing. So it's a kind of guilt, self-guilt, you know, they have developed. And now they want to just, I don't know, this this is really nonsensical, but yeah. it yeah. is a reality of our life that when yeah. they look at us, for, the, for them, we are the victims that needs to be pampered. That yeah, but that, to that's be, also it. It's, it's the, the, like you said, infantilizing. They don't, we can't, Oh, the harm you might cause someone by giving them that opinion. Like, I'm not going to get harmed by an opinion. Exactly. Okay. Why they don't think that our kids can learn this thing? Why they don't want our kids to learn it even? Why they (laughs) always, uh, you know, overreacting? No, no, no. Don't say anything to them. They will be offended or they will be angry. Okay, but okay, the Canadian government, I mean, I think Canada is about as woke as you can get as far as politics go. We're teaching our diplomats. So I don't know if you saw that thing from the Smithsonian. The, 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 the graphic went out quite a bit. They took the graphic off, but they still have the information on their website. But it's so things like uh, love of the written word, punctuality, professionalism, um, objectivity, a sense of urgency. These are all considered aspects of white supremacy culture. We're teaching this to our diplomats and our foreign servants. Okay. Our, our our immigration department has a definition of white privilege and anyone. So these are the things that uphold white supremacy culture. So, and 
the immigration department says anyone who has ideas that uphold white supremacy culture has white privilege. So it doesn't matter. And it, they say it doesn't matter the color of your skin or your race. If you uphold, if you have these ideas, you have white privilege. So, I mean, we had a conference or whatever. It was a conference put on by a bunch of people. Um, uh, this was during COVID, so it was all online. But it was talking about brown brown complicity and white supremacy, how brown people help white supremacy go, get advanced. And it's crap like this. And so... This when, also happens here in the UK. Yeah, so when, when, a, yeah, when a non-white person espouses these ideas, oh, they're no longer... You know, if they're brown, they're a coconut. If they're, you know, yeah. uh, East Asian, they're a banana, like, you know, yellow on the outside, white on the inside. I mean, you had someone in uh, in the U.S., Nicole Hannah-Jones. She, she did the 1619 Project. She won a Pulitzer. She talked about how you're either racially black or politically black, and you need to be politically black. And it, it's, it's just this, it's this ridiculousness. And it's like, I looking at this, I'm like, how... If this is the conversations our leaders are having, how are we going to solve anything exactly. major that comes along? This is a, I see, if you cannot eliminate the marks of racism, how can you ever, ever, you know, even think of repudiating uh, racism from the society? You want to keep the very marks of racism alive and vibrating. I mean, dividing people into brown, black, white categories, and then people from minority backgrounds who espouse, you know, uh, secular values or who are not as conservatives um, as they're supposed to be. So they are called traitors, sellout, or not so, you know, um, good or perfect. I would say brown person or not good victim, the right kind of victim, as they say. <laughs> so really, it's ridiculous that if people who don't want to be, you know, um, live in a box, the box they have made for us. I mean, I never want to be called a brown woman, and literally, I, I, People never, I, I don't receive, you know, a welcoming, uh, you know, response mostly when I say this thing. It's always like they are looking at, at me in a very, you know, hostile manner that, oh, she doesn't want to be called a brown woman. I mean, again, that kind of mentality, Uncle Tom and, you know, sell out and not uh, right kind of brown person. So this kind of attitude, people who want to integrate integrate or who have already integrated they face this kind of attitude and that is really discouraging i mean what you want those people to do why they cannot i mean come out of that box that identity box once that identity you know this identity politics was you know useful people uh, in the past they use it to claim their rights civil rights movements you know they were based on this identity politics. But now the spirit, I would say, the, the meaning of identity politics, it's being changed entirely. It's not about your right. It's about isolating yourself from the mainstream society and try to, I don't know, it's, it's a really strange, a very narcissistic approach, I would say, that... You don't want to be a part of the society. You want to see the whole society as your enemy and never want to be in, in you know, in good relation with the rest of your, um, you know, fellow human beings because you think that their ancestors have done something that is that is definitely not acceptable. But still, it's not they, it's, it's their ancestors. But still, you want to punish them or you want to criticize them harshly, so harshly, that there is no point of getting along, you know, with each other. Yeah, it's just, I mean, again, this is something I keep bringing up. There was a school in New York City where they did this, um, and this school, I mean, they got a lot of public, uh, a lot of publicity, and they got a lot of press because it was one of the first ones that this blew up in, and it was a private school that through charges like $50,000 a year, and this is from K through 8, and so what they did was they took uh, kids who were in third grade to eighth grade, 
They separated them by racial affinity groups for 45 minutes a week and told all the white kids that you were oppressors and you oppressed everyone, told all the all the other kids that you were oppressed by whitey. These kids started going online, looking up things like what's good about my race, what's bad about other people's races. And they turned into like, well, not all of them, but you know, a big chunk of them turned into these huge racists. They were spouting out ethno-nationalistic stuff, whether if they, if they were white, they were spouting out KKK stuff. If they were black, it was like hard. And it's like, yeah, but you're getting them to focus on their race. You're getting them to focus on their differences instead of what their similarities are. Like focus on a common humanity, not on what separates you. But okay. and, and it makes things worse. And they say, ah, see, there was always racists here. It's like, no, but you caused them. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's the same thing that you don't want to um, stop using this the language of, of uh, racism. You want to deploy this language in everyday, you know, routine stuff, in every single uh, routine that we we have, you know, adopted or in in our day to day life. You want to deploy this language in all spheres of life, and then you want people to not to uh, talk about, you know, this kind of attitude. And especially kids are they are impressionable. When you are teaching them this kind of, you are separating them on the basis of their race. I mean, the concept that because your skin colors are different and you belong to different race, it's 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 a racist itself. Yeah. So it's a kind of new racism, I would say, that they're trying to normalize in the name of identity politics or you say identity or whatever, that you need to tell a child that you are being oppressed or you are oppressed, no matter whatever you do in your life, you can never achieve, you know, um, a good place in your life, a good job, a good, you know, position in society, because you belong to a certain uh, community. And on the other side, you tell a child that you belong to a community that is deemed to be uh, an oppressor, and uh, you have got everything, but the reality is they haven't got everything. They, the working class is just as non-privileged as like any other person in the society. Their children, they don't get to have, you know, privileges or, uh, you know, comforts in their life uh, without making any effort. They have to make efforts like any other person in the society. So this kind of, um, I would say, generalization is not going to take us anywhere, really. We are claiming that we are just fighting against racism, but actually we are, you know, getting deep into the depths of, you know, this racism. And if it continues to happen, I don't think so we're going to ever come out of that. Yeah. But I mean, like what you were just talking about there, okay, working white working class kids don't have any kind of privilege or anything. So this is a quote from Derek Bell. So Derek Bell was basically the godfather of critical race theory. Um, and this is from a book called uh, Faces at the Bottom of a Well and the Permanence of Racism. So it said, black people are the magical faces at the bottom of society's well. Even the poorest whites, those who must live their lives only a few levels above, gain their self-esteem by gazing down on us. So because of this and like what he wrote in the book, I mean, and other stuff, you get you know, quote unquote, serious PhD students writing papers on how homeless people or white people who live in trailers are more privileged than the Obamas. Yeah. You know, and it's, and again, it's just putting everything on skin color and it's putting everything yes. on this useless idea. And it's... I, and with this kind of, you know, narrative, they are not, uh, you know, filling the gaps. They are not building bridges, they are actually uh, dividing people, you know, thinking that, the, just imagine if I am a child and I'm, I've been told that you are an oppressed person, how would I think, you know, of my classmates who belong to a community that is deemed to be an oppressor? Just imagine, I wouldn't be able to 
you know, have any kind of good relationship with that classmate. So what kind of society we are going to have after, after a decade or so, if, yeah. if this continues? I mean, that would be disastrous, I would say, in terms of race relations. But I mean, it's also like getting back to the Islam thing. It's that's what generates that sense of entitlement. Oh, yes. your words are going to harm me. So yes. they use they use that language of whatever progressivism, wokeism, whatever you want to call it, and to further their agenda. They're like, oh, that's causing me harm. This whole safetyism thing that we have to like, you know, wrap everyone in cotton wool and we can't let them get harmed in you know the slightest way. It's just like no. I don't want to see kids get bullied. I don't want to see kids get harassed, but I'm sorry, everyone goes through a little bit of it and you need to be able to have, exactly. you need to have your defenses up for that. Obed, I, I would say that in my childhood, uh, I spent my childhood in Pakistan, my teenage years in Pakistan. Mm -hmm. And in Pakistan, 99.9% people that look like me, <laughs> still I faced bully bullying i mean every day on everyday basis you know because of my hair because of my height because i don't look nice to some people because i don't speak very nicely or i stay quiet most of the time i mean i did face these kind of situation but you know what the difference is that in pakistan you, you don't really talk about these issues um people pick on you because of your skin color because of your you know appearance you really don't uh, uh, call them out it, because there is no concept of you know um, discrimination or bullying mm. and all that people they just have normalized these things but here in the west we have the opportunity to call out people to say out loud that no it's not right it's discrimination it's bigotry it's bullying and i think that is encouraging that should be the way forward I, I don't see any society that is perfect where you don't feel uh, face bullying or you don't face discrimination or you don't face bigotry. But saying this, that UK, I, I, I can say that UK is one of the most diverse society, inclusive society that, that I have ever seen, really. Here, you really feel like home. So many people around you, like they look like you, they talk like you. I mean, you don't feel alienated, you know? And then there are rights, your rights are protected. Then your right to free speech is protected. Then you are free as a woman, as a free thinker. I don't see that the UK, British society can be in any way a worst society in terms of racism or bigotry or discrimination against minorities. It's, it's not true really. But people, they love to, you know, curse, really, uh, the society in the name of, you know, um, Islamophobia stuff all the time, you know, paddling this narrative that uh, there is Islamophobia is on the rise, um, there is anti-Muslim bigotry. I won't say that it doesn't happen. It does happen. But saying this, this is the worst kind of society. And there is no way out of this situation. I think that is wrong. Yeah. I mean, okay, like, I don't know about the statistics in the UK. Um, again, just because Trudeau kept pushing up Islamophobia and stuff recently. I think since 2019, cases of Islamophobic attacks, if you, I, I, that's, that's the term the police use. So, but like anti-Muslim attacks have gone down 62%. Mm. It was never... At one point, I think it got into the top five. I, I, like anti-Semitism is, since I've been looking into the stats, has always been number one. It's always been yeah. yes. But like I said, now like Islamophobia has gone down sixty-two percent. Yet they're still pushing it. They're still yeah. pushing about oh, you can't be Islamophobic, you can't be that, and it just because the, the the their uh, aim is to ring fence the ideology, not the people. They don't aim to protect people. They are aimed to ring fence the ideology, the Islamic ideology, the Islamist. They, they don't want anybody to criticize their beliefs, to uh, mock their religion, to ridicule their religion. You know, in, in, in the Western society, that is a norm. 
really, mm. that people make fun of religious belief and they are not getting punished. It's not a crime in these societies. But this is what Islamists don't want because once they are comfortable with people criticizing their religious belief, obviously they wouldn't be able to continue, you know, um, doing or, you know, performing all those uh, rituals and tradition as they do right now in the name of religious freedom. For them, it's the, the death of, you know, they're conscious that, okay, now we, we have become like any other person. There is also an element of supremacy, you know, that religious supremacy, that they believe that they are the best, you know, among human beings who have been chosen by Allah. And they are the best. How can they be like any other person who is very tolerant? No, they can't be. They have to be very, you know, aggressive when it comes to uh, defend their your religious belief and, you know, your um, respect of your prophet and all that. So they, this is also another thing, um, supremacy, religious supremacy, that they want to, uh, you know, demonstrate that we are not like any other person. We are different. Okay, you can tolerate if we, your religion is being criticized. We cannot because our religion is perfect religion and we are, you know, the best people among human beings. Yeah, that's, and it's just, I mean, hopefully the our leaders start changing things around or hopefully the, you know, the, the general Muslim population starts speaking up. Um, I don't want to keep you too much longer. Uh, I think this is a good place to stop. Thank you very much, Khadija, for coming back on. It was good talking to you. And, well, thank uh, you so much about, for having me. It was really nice discussion, <laughs> really. Um, if you want to let people know where they can get a hold of you and where they can find your writings, I'll put a couple of links to your articles in the description so people can read some of them. Thank you. All right. Well, thanks a lot. And thanks, everyone, for listening.